Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hello, everybody. I'm Olga Sergeyevich, the Head of Investor Relations at Village Global. Excited to introduce our guests today, Gurdain Butani and Zishan Muhammadi. They both are network investors with Village Global and co-founders and general partners at MBX. MBX is an early-stage VC that invests in public health. And prior to that, they co-founded another healthcare and life sciences venture capital firm, FundRx. They both have a wealth of investing and operating experience across biotech, medical devices, healthcare IT, and services. And in today's conversation, we'll dive into the evolution of investing models in healthcare, opportunities in public health specifically, and technology-led paradigm shifts in medicine today, and how they impact our lives. Gurdain Zishan, welcome to Village Global Stories. Thanks so much for having us on. So you've had a lot of experience investing in biotech, healthcare IT services, and other areas. Tell us a little bit about how you view the healthcare sector today, how it's evolved over the last decade, and what are some of the challenges and opportunities um, investing in this area? Absolutely. So, you know, I think what's interesting about you know, this space is that there's been some real paradigm shifts over the last decade in terms of you know, where pharma is in particular, uh, I've seen sort of the biggest growth opportunities. So we're recording this podcast on August 10th. Uh, yesterday, Eli Lilly crossed half a trillion dollars in market cap, became the most valuable pharma in the world. And they did that by pursuing a strategy that most other pharmas thought didn't make sense. Most pharmas over the last decade have focused on niche indications, rare diseases, these pseudo-arbitrage opportunities where they can develop a drug for a relatively small number of people, charge super high prices for that therapy, and as a result, you know, add, 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 add dollars to the market cap. Lilly, on the other hand, pursued a strategy of therapeutics that they, they felt could have population-level health benefit. And so they developed this drug, um, you know, which is a GLP-1 uh, agonist um, that they've seen a lot of promise for in obesity, but yesterday they revealed data uh, that showed it, it seems to have quite a quite a large benefit in, in heart disease and stroke, which you know are some of the biggest killers uh, you know in in our society. And as a result of that, in a single day, they added seventy five billion dollars of market cap uh, on the heels of, of of just one data announcement. And so I think there's this this shift that's emerging now where pharma's and biotechs are realizing that hey, maybe the strategy of of yesteryear where we focus on these narrow disease states maybe doesn't make sense. And we should actually pursue these population level opportunities because when they work, they can be you know, phenomenal economic outcomes, but also deliver huge value um, to society. So, so that's kind of what we're seeing in, in, in the life sciences uh, uh, land. On the other side of the coin, I think what we've learned over the last decade is that there's been a huge emergence of venture backed uh, healthcare services companies, right? So-called tech enabled services companies. And I think what we've seen in that universe with, with some exceptions is that Fundamentally, the venture returns may not be there. There's a handful of strategic acquisitions and IPOs. We'll see how those shake out over time. But it turns out that healthcare services is a relatively low margin business. Even if you add tech, you know, maybe you're achieving 30 or 40% gross margins. It's a radical departure from traditional technology investing and, and SaaS margins. And so for conventionally structured venture rounds, you know, I think our view is that in that world, you know, probably the outcomes may be in the, the hundreds of millions of dollars, but maybe not in the tens of billions of dollars that we're seeing in conventional tech. And so I think that's also driving a paradigm shift where entrepreneurs have, have, have figured that out, funds have figured that out. And there's a shift now in, in what kinds of businesses are, are really venture backable uh, versus not. And how would all that impact um, sort of us as, you know, as consumers of healthcare services, right? Because if let's say pharma companies only started to focus on, you know, the diseases that have the highest impact on population level, et cetera, and then there are certain areas where we're saying, well, it's not interesting to back that, then do, do we expect there will be other types of players with perhaps, you know, not, not necessarily venture return profile who would come in and back it? Or sort of how do you think about you know, private sector, investing in the sector in the larger public health policy context? Yeah, absolutely. So, so on the biotech side of things, I think what this may mean is that we see 
a, perhaps a, a relative decrease in the number of relatively narrow disease programs that are funded. I think time will tell. There still remain a, a large number of incentives there, but I, my hope is that you know maybe those programs will continue to, to, to get funded, but that we'll also see increased funding uh, for these population level health threats. In the healthcare services universe, I think the, the, the challenge there is that you know, there may be fewer tech-enabled healthcare, tech-enabled healthcare services companies formed uh, over the coming years, and the types of firms that back them may look very different than conventional venture firms. There are now firms out there that have PE-esque operator DNA that are integrating technology in a really powerful way into healthcare delivery to create, um, you know, companies that I think will be, you know, uh, be able to deliver a higher quality of care, do it in a more accessible way, make that experience of care better but that recognize that they need very high ownership in order to rationalize those investments. And so will your generalist seed fund continue to back, you know, tech-enabled healthcare services? My guess is probably not, but will there be an emergence of a large number of these operator-led funds that take more of a hands-on incubation-style approach? I think so. Got it. That makes sense. And I think, you know, one thing that's interesting about the world of technology and different types of businesses, it's almost like an animal planet, right? Where you sort of have different adaptations, right? And when you think about the risk return profile of different types of investment, they just move on from, you know, venture backable universe to perhaps a little bit different models in private capital. Um, so let's talk a little bit about healthcare. Obviously, you know, to be able to invest in that sector requires a lot of specialized knowledge. And both of you raised uh, multiple funds and strategies. And of course, both of you worked hard to compete for the hearts and minds of the best founders in the sector. So what are some of the things that you find are really important to be a great investor in healthcare overall, which perhaps you don't necessarily hear LPs ask about, or like, what would you advise LPs to pay attention to? Well, I, I think um, I think LPs should just pay attention to, to DPI. Um, I think that that's the only thing that matters. <laughs> uh, it, in 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 all seriousness, um, I think beyond that, I think for for LPs who want sector specific exposure, like in healthcare. Um, they should consider breaking down that sector into what, what's obvious and, and not obvious to, to really find that alpha. Um, so first, when, when we talk about obvious, we, we think they will get exposure to obvious spaces in healthcare, like virtual care delivery, remote patient monitoring, general behavioral health, et cetera, through generalist funds. And, and to be honest, I don't think that's an alpha generating strategy um, if you want to be sector specific. Um, but second, when we talk about non-obvious in healthcare, by that, what we mean is that what, what is truly pre-obvious, because we want these areas to become obvious to capital downstream from us, um, such as you know in, investing at the intersection of environmental health and, and human health. Um, for that, I, I would then focus on managers who are demonstrating the ability uh, to invest in these spaces before generalist funds catch up um, to really capture that alpha. So for example, in, in 2017, 2018, um, before the healthcare staffing labor issues were, were sort of in vogue, we spent a lot of time with administrators to understand that their needs were not really related to better travel nursing platforms. It was actually, how do we better utilize our existing workforce? Um, and, and that led to our early investment in a company called Carev in 2019, which is one of the leading labor marketplaces and, and workforce management platforms in the space. Um, so whether it's with us or any other manager, um, the way you ought to select managers is by them demonstrating they're actually doing the work, building the information advantages, the networks in these spaces, and then showing their ability to, to find these companies before the larger funds provide growth capital. And I think for entrepreneurs, you kind of want to be thinking about this space as, you know, am I addressing a, a root cause problem? Am I developing something net new? Right versus an incremental, um, you know, innovation or uh, product, right? That might unfortunately sort of get lost in, um, get lost in the sea of of solutions out there. But thank you for that perfect segue into my next question. Let's let's dig deeper into public health specifically. Um, so, how do you think about that sector in the context of a broader healthcare investing space? And, um, you know, give us give us a Venn diagram if there is anything else that goes into it and, and what's important to identify those opportunities and be able to find the best companies. 
No, I really appreciate you, Olga, uh, describing public health as, as a sector. We're trying to make it one uh, that, that's you know viable for, for private market investment. But historically, public health really has been the domain of you know, the, the academy and of governments, right? When you think about public health, you, know, you think about the CDC, you think about schools of public health, rarely do people think about entrepreneurship within public health. Um, we believe, on the other hand, that actually innovation is incredibly important in this domain. And the reason that we believe that is because what we're observing is, is a broad trend in society where there's very few of us that have access to truly clean water, safety from climate change, uh, you know, safe air, safety from air pollution, access to food uh, that, that's clean and, 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 and good for you, uh, quiet spaces, and, and so forth. And these are all fundamentally public health issues. These are issues that you really can't address particularly well in the doctor's office, right? If someone's exposed to a lot of air pollution, yes, they might develop asthma and you can treat the asthma. But, you know, you're not really solving the root cause problem there, right? And so when people think about these, these, these issues, let's take noise pollution, for example. You know, noise pollution is, is actually a very significant public health threat. You know, one out of 20, if not, you know, one-tenth of, of heart attacks in America are actually driven in large part by noise pollution. Um, when you think about that, you say, okay, well, public health researchers can identify noise is bad for us, and governments should go and regulate noise. But that actually doesn't fully solve the problem because, yes, a government can say, yes, we, we, we need to regulate noise in this way or that way. But we need innovators and we need entrepreneurs to actually figure out how to make society less noisy by leveraging technology. So as an example of this, there are innovators that are developing quiet concrete, right, literally making our roads quieter so that when vehicles drive over them, we actually are exposed to less noise. There's companies developing noise abatement technology for industrial applications, right? So when people go to work, in a mine or on a construction site or you know wherever else it may be, that's actually a safer and better work environment. And, and those are fundamentally technology solutions that entrepreneurs are best suited to develop. And so I think what's emerging within public health is, you know, there's an increasing willingness for these public-private partnerships for the opportunity to engage innovators. And we think that these issues will be, you know, fundamentally critical to address. Uh, to preserve sort of the fabric of our society over the coming decades. And so that's why we're so excited about you know, public health as a sector. And when when I hear something like, you know, usually or historically it's been the domain of academia or public sector, my, my first thought is, well, there's probably a good reason for it. So can you make money investing in the sector? Yeah. So I would say the, the, the internet was once the domain of uh, the public sector. Uh, and that led to probably the greatest economic boon of, of the century, right? Uh, as a result of the translation of the internet from what was once you know, fundamentally a government uh, you know, construct into one that you know, private innovators could innovate on top of, right? So I think there's, there's sort of this necessary collaboration that has to occur. I think in terms of venture returns within public health, I think we have a few examples of, you know, yes, you can absolutely make money here, right? If you look at the market caps of Pfizer and Moderna and what they've done in the vaccine space, Without question, those are huge economic uh, results. But even more broadly than that, I, I think there's a fundamental question that you know LPs need to ask themselves, entrepreneurs need, entrepreneurs need to ask themselves, and us as managers need to ask themselves, which is that: Do we believe that these issues will become economically important to society over the coming decades? If you believe that's true, and that people will demand that they have access to clean air, clean water, a better environment, um, you know food that's higher quality, et cetera, then absolutely there's going to be huge economic potential. If you don't believe that, you know, that's fair. You can, you may have your reasons for that. Um, we're on, we're on one side of the coin. There are people that are on the other. I think time will tell, but um, you know, we're really excited about the potential here. Yeah. And I think there's no doubt that there's a lot of value that would come from addressing some of these problems. I think the question is, can you actually capture that value as, you know, as an entrepreneur building in the sector? Yep. And, you know, undoubtedly, a lot of the entrepreneurs in this sector specifically are very much driven by their passion for solving these problems, right? And by impact they can have. So what would be your advice to entrepreneurs looking to address different problems in the sector from the perspective of what type of funding should they seek, right? Because it yep. seems that there's probably a lot of different players with different expectations for both, you know, the level of return and the timeline and the volatility and certainty of it. So as a founder, you know, what's the, what's the sort of founder capital source fit framework that you would recommend? Yeah. So I think this comes down to 
whether the the first two um, sort of things I just spoke about, the academy and government, have gotten to a place where it's now possible for private innovators to take advantage of what's already happened in a field and capture economic value as a result of that. So let's take Tesla as an example. A big, big driver of Tesla's growth, right, is tax subsidies and rebates for purchasing you know, electric vehicles, right? In the absence of that, um, or in the absence of you know, the development of you know, LI batteries and a number of other pieces of the tech in the academy that are used in those cars, there's no Tesla. Or at least Tesla doesn't capture the economic value that it has today. I think the same is true within this field. So as an entrepreneur, if I'm thinking about starting a company, what I'm gonna what I would think about is okay, it is the basic research at a place where that can now be translated into commercial applications. Have governments caught up in terms of the regulatory environment, the tax environment, whatever it is from an incentive standpoint, where it now makes sense. It's now there's now an unlock that's occurred for us to capture economic value. And then am I the right person to build that? If all those things are true, I think you can raise venture capital. I think if those things are true, you can produce venture returns. If only one of those things are true, right? Like maybe the basic science is there, but the government hasn't cut up. It's tough. You might end up in a place where you're trying to do something thinking that, oh, the government might add some regulations that would benefit our company or something. And that never comes to pass and you don't produce a venture return. So you're probably in the vein of, you know, at that point, raising money from NIH or other governmental sources until the market's ready for you. And so the framing of that, I think, is, you know, think about the the baseline conditions that are required for, you know, you to succeed as an entrepreneur, and that should inform the funding source that you pursue. And earlier in this conversation, Zishan mentioned information advantage and the importance of um, having one to find non-obvious areas to invest. So let's dig deeper into that. You know, one way to think to build an information advantage and a consistent way of having it is um, a network-based approach. And this is, of course, something that we're very focused on at Village Global. You're focused on with MBX. And many funds launched, you know, some form of scout programs in the last decade or so. And on the surface, all of these programs look similar. But as we all know, it's all about the nuance of execution. You had a lot of experience building out these programs and core to what you do at MBX. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, your version of, and I think you call it community-driven investment infrastructure. So what does it look like? How you build it? What were some of the challenges? You know, what what you've learned about how to you know build a program that's sustainable and um, that is a competitive advantage for you as a fund? Yep, a- absolutely. Um, what we did is give people like physicians and, and scientists in healthcare an opportunity to engage in the innovation cycle where you know they were historically left out. Uh, and, and it couldn't be more personal to me. Uh, my, my dad is a physician, he's a nephrologist um, who would take these expert network calls you know, where he's explaining to investors how dialysis works and what these popula- what the population they're treating is like, um, you know, have these discussions while, while dropping us to, to school. It was sort of funny. It was kind of ha- how we paid for uh, family vacations. But you know, w- w- what I remember is wondering and asking, why aren't you getting more than just some cash for, for providing such valuable insights? Um, so when you, when you zoom out, you realize that you have all of this rich, experienced intellectual and human capital um, sitting on the sidelines in healthcare um, that, that's already somewhat you know, organized through medical societies, et cetera. Um, but it could be productively applied to the innovation engine. So we built a research and investment framework leveraging a network of 800 leaders in healthcare who help us think through clinical, regulatory, technical, commercial aspects of a, of a company or a space and we work with them on these specific thesis areas, often you know, co-created with them, which makes it easier for them to share sort and share companies and, and thoughts and, and effectively work with us on sourcing. Um, but most importantly, we we economically incentivize them by sharing our carried interest and in offering real cash incentives to truly show reciprocity. Um, and, and most importantly, we we also we respect their time. Um, these are really busy people, so when you when you engage them. Um, you know, you want to kind of come to them having done the work and not just necessarily looking to pull information out of them. Um, but what we learned about this is, is that we can really unpack and, and kind of get into the weeds of highly complex areas of healthcare, you know, finding root causes of, of these big problems um, that we can ultimately invest in and then effectively support founders with this same network. 
which ends up being a virtuous cycle of, of, of research and, and, and sourcing and portfolio acceleration, et cetera. Um, I think where, where people kind of lose uh, a little bit of, of, of uh, vision around, you know, what they call sort of the platform teams and so forth is sort of artificially engaging these groups, over-productizing, trying to make it, um, you know, almost feel inauthentic, right, around ways of working with them. And, and I think that leads to sort of adverse selection, right, across the types of people that want to work with you, the type of information they're going to share, et cetera. So for us, it's been a journey of over, you know, four or five years of really um, dialing into what works with with this group of people and, and you know, how, how they want to work with us. So that's a very interesting idea that, you know, the, the design of this program would select for what type of a person wants to work with you. So how would you describe the perfect archetype of an expert in this field who's the right one for you? There, there's no perfect archetype, right? I, I think we we have to think about it in the context of what we're what you know what we're trying to engage around and what this person is is trying to get out of it from us, right? We want to make sure it's sort of bidirectional. Um, you know, there are folks that are sort of later in their career who are well established, um, who have amassed you know wealth of information and, and, and experience, um, who are you know self selecting in that they're excited to be involved in in the next thing, right? Excited in the innovation, excited in and sort of addressing the problems that they've seen over their career be completely neglected. Um, so they sort of present themselves and are very active and, and excited to work with us. Similarly, I mean, in areas, you know, where, where we're doing research or expanding in thesis areas, you know, oftentimes it, it might be a, a PhD student, right? Very early in their career, very hungry um, to kind of, you know, get into, um, to, to, to get into the, the startup world or into the commercial world. Um, and, and they may not have the same real world experience at that point. However, they sort of have this thirst for knowledge and, and engaging around, you know, going down a rabbit hole with us in a particular space and sharing information um, and co-creating around a thesis area. And, and you know, that's a sort of a, you know, typically a different kind of person than the first person, I, first kind of person I mentioned. But ultimately, I think for us, it's about being open minded and sort of welcoming to, to all folks in, in, in who have interest in, in addressing some of these public health areas and um, and then working with them and meeting them kind of where they are. So not not to be over really picky, I guess, is, is one 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 critical lesson. We had a conversation earlier that one of the biggest advantages of young people starting companies is that they just don't know how hard it might be, right? They just don't know what can go wrong. And I'd imagine that in your sector, it's a key advantage for someone to actually not know how hard the U.S. sort of medical, you know, healthcare system infrastructure and navigating it is to even be able to take on the problem, right? And imagine a solution. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you are putting people in business and sort of, you know, Giving the tools to invest and build solutions for for people who are able to identify them. Yeah, and, and you know you, you have to sort of be discerning in all of this, right? Our job, um, you know, Gurdani and I, a lot of what we do is obviously spend time with folks in these networks, but it's also kind of distilling the right information from the feedback, right, in the engagement, um, and and then sort of painting a picture around you know a specific thesis area or, or yeah, as it might relate to a company intelligence. Um, and, and that itself is also, I think, an art, right? So having a great network is, is one component of it. Um, but I think you have to get a lot of cycles in on how to work with everybody, how to piece the information together, how to really you know, make that actionable. Um, so I, I would say, you know, building the network is certainly a, a big, you know, cold start challenge. Um, but, you know, then, then how to effectively leverage it um, and, and use it in a way that is productive is, is I think, the other half. Yeah, I think maybe like just to add to that a little bit, I think one other lesson for us is just identifying how to engage in productive disagreement really effectively. I'm remembering an investment you know we made uh, you know uh, many years ago now. I won't won't mention the company, but we, as part of our diligence, spoke to two individuals that had both previously run health plans, um, and they had completely opposite feedback on the specific company. We actually loved that because it sort of gave us. I think both sides of the coin and for every company, there's always two sides to it, you know, why it might work and why it might not. But, you know, one of those individuals, we, we then had to go back to it and said, Hey, you know, we, we love you, we respect you, but we're, we're, we're making this investment, right? Uh, even though you think this company doesn't make sense. And I think learning how to engage in that disagreement in an effective way that demonstrates respect for that person's time and their expertise, but also acknowledges that, you know, they might be wrong um, is, is sort of an art that we've had to learn over the years. So this actually brings me to another interesting topic, you know, in partnerships where you have 
two people starting something, right? Obviously, decision-making and, and everything tends to be 50-50 and people sometimes engage in disagreements, et cetera. And uh, I think there was this long discussion today on, on Twitter about founder breakups and, you know, what a big risk to business that is. So what are some of your secrets? Just, in, and you two have known each other for a long time, but were, what were some of the things that you learned in making sure that your partnership is extremely effective and it, you know, it continues to work? That's such a good question. So Z and I have worked together now for almost a decade. Um, certainly known each other for longer than that. And you know, I think one of the things as 50-50 partners, you know, we, we've tried to integrate into our decision-making process is identifying the strength of our disagreement when there is one. So there are often situations where we might disagree on a potential investment. It might be a deal that I want to do that Z doesn't and vice versa. But I think what we've realized is that you know, unanimous consent isn't always the best thing, but it's important to understand how, how strongly the other person disagrees with an opportunity, right? So maybe, so I think of a specific case where there was a company that Z really was pushing for that you know, I was really on the fence about. And the strength of Zishan's enthusiasm outweighed the strength of my disagreement. And so we decided as a team, let's do it. Uh, and fortunately, that investment has worked out fabulously, right? So it's, you know, there's some hindsight bias here. Um, but I think like, really honing in on on that like magnitude of belief um has been you know really vital to to a strong partnership i i would add um one thing that i really appreciate about our partnership is sort of the, the candor and self-awareness um that we, we both sort of bring to the table and it's not you know it's not a you know kind of like I'm right or wrong. And, you know, this is like, you know, radical transparency type of you know, framework. I mean, which is you know, important. I think giving correct feedback is helpful. But I think there's, um, I think we're both very self-aware of our strengths and weaknesses. And when, so when we're thinking about building a firm, right, outside of an investment, right, building a firm, taking on some strategic objectives, et cetera, um, we, we trust each other based off of that strength of that self-awareness. So, where you know, I might have an intuition to go in a certain direction, Gordane has an intuition to go in If it's tracking to what we know about ourselves, it would be true and be well, right? We're very encouraging of that. And I think, um, and I think that's given us a, a really strong foundation to, to continue to build the business um, of MBX as well. That's a really interesting insight on sort of thinking about the nuance of the disagreement, right? And the strength of it and sort of where it comes from and identifying the ability to find a solution. And um, and uh, and I also like that Dan gives in in situations where enthusiasm is high. As, as you can imagine, that's something that often... Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there's, there's... Personality. <laughs> <laughs> it gives us all extra hope. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, uh, you can't, can't we, have the skeptics win all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, especially in this sector. Well, great. Let's let's move to the broader topics around around healthcare and um, and healthcare investing. You know, what are some of the? Let's think about the last ten years. What were some of the areas in healthcare which were either um, you know enabled by technology, identified by technology that have sort of become the most important investable opportunities and which ones of them you think are underhyped, overhyped? So I'll maybe answer the last question first. Uh, maybe a controversial answer, but but I think if you, if you look at the last 30 or 40 years of medicine, the probably biggest fundamental change has been that you know genomics has taken off. We've been able to figure out how to you know, uh, understand what DNA is, sequence it, use those insights to develop new medicines, understand basic biology, uh, and so on. But I would contend that genomics has failed to live up to the promise. If you look back, you read articles from 15, 20 years ago talking about the genomics revolution, if you, particularly if you read articles from like 1998 or 1999, and you hear how people are talking about what will happen in the aughts uh, on the heels of this genomic revolution, a lot of that hasn't come to pass. And you know, I think our contention is that the reason that's the case is not because genomics is unimportant. It's an incredible you know, field, it's the technologies underlying it is, are, are hugely valuable, but because we're missing half of the equation. So there's a classic saying in environmental health, which is that uh, your, you know, your genes load the gun uh, and environment pulls the trigger. And we're missing this equation of understanding our exposures, our environmental exposures, and what's happening outside of us um, that are dramatically, in, you know, influencing our health. So I'd say, while geno genomics is under uh, is overhyped, 
the most underhyped area within healthcare is environmental health and, and exposure science. And the reason for this is if you look at disease pathogenesis today, the vast majority of diseases that we suffer from are actually predominantly driven by the environment. If you look at the medicines that we've created, leveraging, you know, the sort of the most recent advances in, in gene editing and so forth, unfortunately, those medicines are super expensive and they benefit very few people. I'm optimistic that that won't be the case in a couple of decades, but I think in order to really develop new medicines, new therapies, new care models, and prevent disease from happening in the first place, we really have to pay more attention to environmental health. Um, I, I see a ton of opportunity there uh, over the coming years. So give us more examples. And is that something that, you know, let's say this is an issue that's like, you know, very acute if you live in New York or something, but, you know, the moment you live to Montana, you move to Montana, everything is fine. Yeah. Or what are we talking about here? What are some yeah. of the examples? Let's get, yeah. So let's get really specific. So yeah. autism incidence has been increasing over the last few decades. This is sort of, there's a lot of arguments in the media about this, but like, if you look at the scientific literature, definitively autism incidence is increasing. Why is that? So it turns out that leveraging insights from exposomics, which is a field that studies, you know, the exposures that we we have over our lifetimes, we've been able to identify that one of the root cause drivers of autism is actually heavy metal exposure uh, during pregnancy. So what we've had to understand in order to unlock this insight is what are the exposures that someone is experiencing while they're in utero? And how do those in utero exposures and, and the temporal, the timing of those exposures, like when in utero they were exposed to this metal or that metal and so forth, ultimately has an effect downstream on childhood development and overall health. And so with that information, what can you do? Well, you can develop diagnostic tools for a disease state for which today there's no great diagnostic. You can develop new metal medicines that actually treat the underlying uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, mechanism, right? That's driving the cognitive developmental delays. And then you can also engage in better prevention efforts where you can, you know, for instance, during pregnancy, you know, uh, uh, prescribe chelating agents, right? These are, these are basically medicines that uh, capture heavy metals that may be, you know, in your body to avoid uh, that from happening and, and, and the child being exposed, um, you know, to those contaminants in the first place. And these are for people that, you know, live in both you know, some of the cleanest cities in the world, you know, sort of, you know, this is happening in Stockholm, Sweden, and it's also happening you know, in, 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 in Flint, Michigan, right. Where you have really poor water quality, we're all exposed to this stuff in different amounts, but, um, you know, you need those insights to really understand what's going on and what's driving that disease state. And let's dig in more into some of the themes around, because this, I presume is one of your areas of focus within public health. So what are some of the other things that you find exciting today in your investable opportunity set? Yeah. So, so I think, um, there's, there's, a, there's a handful of, of areas that are exciting to us as a result of recent policy changes, right? So going back to this framework of you need the basic science, you need sort of the regulatory environment to be right, and then, then you can unlock innovation. I think one area that's been really exciting to us is, you know, last year there was an, an act passed by Congress called the FDA Modernization Act, which basically enables the FDA to begin accepting um, data uh, from uh, in vitro models uh, in lieu of taking data from animal models. So if you talk to any drug developer or any toxicologist or anyone that's in the business developing you know, pesticides or other, other chemicals, the way that we test those chemicals for safety historically has been through the paradigm of animal testing. You test something in a rat, then you decide, you know, is this safe or not? Or, you know, maybe a larger mammal from time to time. So the FDA Modernization Act now for the first time is enabling FDA to really accept these data in lieu of classic animal experiments. At the same time, the EPA, which regulates things like pesticides and so forth, has basically committed that by 2035, they will no longer accept data from any mammalian, mammalian animal tests. So there's this huge regulatory tailwind that's now unlocking a wave of innovation in how we do drug safety testing and chemical product safety testing. And as a result of that, we're seeing you know, really compelling opportunities, for instance, in the organoid on a chip world or the organ chip world, where we can test a huge volume of chemicals or a huge number of different drug candidates on these high throughput systems in essentially mini human livers or mini human hearts that give us much higher fidelity data than we would get from conventional animal testing. So, that, so that's one area I think that's that's really exciting. I'm sure Zeeshan has a few more. Yeah. So, you know, we, we like to um, think about you know, addressing root, root causes of a lot of these public health challenges sort of as, as Gurdam was just walking us through. I think 
diving into the future of brain science, you know, sort of beyond the level one thinking that we have today in behavioral health, which is, you know, you know, treat people with SSRIs. I think um, really going deep on understanding how we humans sort of experience this world, right? Like how does the brain work um, beyond sort of examining neurodegenerative diseases? Um, I, I think that will be a big space in public health as well. Um, so much of living a happy, healthy life is, is tied to this. So we're interested in, in research tools, software, hardware um, that help us sort of uh, unpack the, the mind a little bit. I have a, I have a mentor who we work with on this space who's, uh, who kind of asks these questions like, could you explain your human experience? And you know, if you think about that question, it, it's actually really hard to, to answer, but it opens, up to, opens you up to, you know, wow, um, we really need to figure this out because so much of of, of sort of the, the suffering around us, right, is, is really sort of generated from, from within in some capacity. Um, you know, fun fact is we, we're part of a consortium called BrainMind, which uh, Reed Kaufman is also part of as well, which is obviously um, one, of, one of Village's uh, uh, main luminaries. Separately, I, I think the intersection of defense and, and bio is very exciting. Uh, we used to call it public health infrastructure. So we, we previously invested in companies that were um, you know, detecting pathogens and 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 working on disease surveillance you know, through through air filtration, but that was before COVID. Um, but I think you know through COVID, we've all realized that we're sort of equally at risk of any you know biological threats, which are you know either natural or man-made, and it's forcing us to become a much more resilient you know independent um, country. Um, and and I think you know we need to go beyond you know how quickly can we make vaccines. You know there there's implications of this in in sort of cyber. Um, in, in supply chain manufacturing, right? Distributed manufacturing is an area we're really in, in, interested in, and and I think a lot of these um, will, a lot of these areas will will create a number of, of dual use technologies. So I, I see value in two areas. First, sort of the, the intersection between the man made world and and the human experience. Clearly, we have a lot of opportunities to invest in solutions to the problems that we've, we've created in that sense, and I think those problems are becoming. More obvious, but but still very exciting, uh, given the infancies of, of those spaces. Um, second, the idea of human resiliency. Um, I don't think any of us would say that we have seen the last biological threat in our lifetime, and so supporting and investing in those areas, um, you know, where we can be you know, uh, building platforms for creating that human resiliency in face of these unknown threats is is a huge opportunity um, in terms of where where we would like to deploy capital. So I'm glad you brought this up. Um, so what do you think will kill us all first, artificial intelligence or synthetic biology? I got to say, yeah, I have a friend who talks about this, which is funny. It's like, you, you don't think very highly of humans, right? Uh, if, if you think we can't, uh, can't really figure this one out. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp that if there was something though, I would say probably a biological pathogen first, maybe designed by by a computer, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I would say that's right. In fact, there there's... <laughs> If you want to read a really, if you want to do a really scary Google search at some point, you know there's there's been a few case reports of basically cyber attacks that are targeting biomanufacturing facilities. So you basically inject a virus, you know, onto onto a biomanufacturing facilities uh, system. Uh, that virus then instructs the system to produce to, uh, uh, DNA that um, you know, is, is potentially dangerous. Uh, and, you know, could potentially infect sort of like drug pipelines and so forth. So that's like actually happened, uh, you know, so that there are cases of that. So, you know, I, I'd say it's probably a combination of the two. Well, so I certainly am a techno optimist. So <laughs> I did ask this question partially as a joke, but um, you know, but I I would assume both of you are also techno optimists. And as as you think about all these opportunities, you know, chances are there is a lot more uh, potential for whatever novel technologies are being developed. You know, in these areas there is a lot more potential for them to improve the way we live our lives. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think the the, pair, the other side of that coin is that, you know, just in the same way in cyber cybersecurity, you got to do penetration testing and understand what the problems are. Like once we understand that, hey, this is happening, like we can actually build solutions to prevent that from happening, right? So I think being transparent about what the risks are enables us to build the safest, most effective solutions so that we can then spend all of our time focused on all the opportunity that lies in front of us. I think in both AI and SynBio, the, the opportunities there far exceed the risk, but we've got to make, pay attention to those risks and protect ourselves from them so that we can actually seize that opportunity in the long run. 
Agreed. And one other aspect of your sector is very interesting and, and quite unique is that with you know with a number of areas within it you sort of have other considerations right so for example ethical considerations or you know sort of issues around should something be governed or made available to you know everybody in the world versus specific countries etc yep. so what are some of the sort of themes and, and ways to think about some of these developments where maybe you think differently from from the rest of your peer set around either ethics or even just general frameworks of um, sort of how to guardrail the development and commercialization of some of the technologies you invest in? Yeah, so I think there's certainly policy guardrails that will be important, right? I think controlling, you know, for instance, certainly there's some synthetic biology technology that we probably, you know, want to keep out of the hands of uh, non-state actors and perhaps some state actors, you know, that we will need you know, both policy solutions to, as well as very clear internal, you know, company policies around. I think at the same time, there, there's sort of a layer of, you know, sort of the openness of information also unlocks more opportunity and makes us safer, right? So in the open source community, right, a big driver of the argument is that, like, if you're not sharing your code base, like, well, we, we can't really, you know, test it and understand sort of what the underlying issues may be, how it might be used maliciously, how to make it safer, protect it, and so forth, right? So I think there's some merit to that argument. I think drawing that that bright line, though, yeah, that's a really hard question, right? And I think um, that's going to be a debate that we're having as a society over the next few years around what do we really want to make open and what do we not? And what would be one sort of policy change or, um, you know, or another development that you think would unlock so much more, you know, building and talent and capital in, in the space of public health today? So similar to kind of what we were talking about earlier, um, where the, the government support can really kind of drive a lot of advancements. You know, the, the government really, uh, the government recently launched uh, ARPA-H, which is the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health. Um, which is sort of like a, a DARPA for healthcare. And in my opinion, it might be one of the most important pieces of, of global policy and initiatives for, um, for healthcare, especially for the public health space. So um, if you recall, DARPA was founded back in the late 50s and, and kind of got us into the space race. It's, it's what got us Sputnik. You know, that ultimately unlocked significant resources to innovate, giving us you know, GPS, weather satellites, stealth technology, just sort of a massive um, catalyst uh, for growth in, in sort of technology and, and uh, for us as a country sort of to lead globally, um, but fundamentally created a, a new ecosystem. Um, so so my, my big push is, you know, that you know, we support ARPA-H, that ARPA-H does for healthcare exactly what DARPA did for defense. And I think, it, you know, it'll unlock capital um, that isn't, you know, tied to specific kind of VC funds or anything like that. But Really is unlocking that early translational, exciting translational work um, that that we need, so that you know investors can see technologies that are a little bit further de-risked, um, and then and ultimately support them. So I think kind of separating itself from you know what the NIH does and, and supporting basic research, you know ARPA H will really help um, get get companies off the ground and and, and kind of focus on that applied. App, you know, version of of their technologies, and so today they have like about a billion and a half in funding. I think, uh, you know, I, I think they need ten x that, right? Uh, I think they should get you know fifteen billion in funding every year, and and focus on a number of these different challenges that that we've talked about. And um, I, I think really a lot of the 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 sort of the accelerant to um, the innovation that we could see in in the space is is going to come from um, from that program. So I'm very excited about it, and, and a big proponent of it. And sometimes you hear people say things like FDA is too conservative and, you know, they don't approve a lot of stuff. We should like abolish FDA period because like, sure, you know, they protect us from, from something that maybe, you know, is not going to work as expected. But, but the flip side of that is opportunity cost of, you know, all sorts of novel things that, that could be unleashed on the market and solving a lot of health issues. So what what would you say to to that point of view and sort of how do you view US regulators on the you know on the spectrum of conservative liberal kind of effective versus some of the other perhaps country regulators So I'd say you know the, the two big ones to compare right would be the FDA and and the European Medicines Agency and I think FDA they're both conservative 
uh, and liberal in their own in their own ways, right? They have different different um, you know areas where they're more lenient versus not, and so forth. I think overall, if you if you talk to drug developers generally, like FDA is quite a collaborative organization, and I think our view of FDA is actually a very positive one, right? I think you know on, on the one hand, you know. Yes, it does mean that the pace of innovation perhaps is a bit slower because you have to work through a rigorous process. But I believe that the scientific rigor that's demanded by FDA is actually really important to ensuring that what gets to market is safe. And and there's a number of programs now that they've created that for therapies that are in areas where, for instance, you know, there's there's no other drug available or there's a a population that really needs something quickly, they actually can be quite flexible. Right. So they're, they're open to, to approving things that may be somewhat experimental, but that you know, need to get to market in order for us to understand more. I think the recent approval of um, aducanumab, uh, which is an Alzheimer's drug, it is a great example of this. I mean, that, that drug, we'll, we'll see how much benefit there is. You know, the FDA basically determined, look, this is safe enough to go out and try. And there seems to be some you know, signal of efficacy. But I think we'll need another 10 years to really know how great of a drug that is versus not. And FDA has been really collaborative and willing to, 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 to make an approval like that. So I think overall, our view is actually you know, probably quite positive um, from a regulatory standpoint. Thank you for that. I think it's important to bring other narratives into some of these conversations. And, and obviously, you're quite close to a lot of these areas. Um, so it's, you know, it's good to give credit where credit is due. And um, so, you know, we're regulated investment advisors, so I can't give financial advice, but uh, but there's nothing (laughs) about medical advice. So let me ask you, in terms of like the recent medical advancements, you know, there's, uh, I think a lot of people pay a lot of attention now to all sorts of new things that they can measure about themselves and quantify and things they track. So, um, you know, out of all that medical content out there, you know, what what's like one or two things that you do think are important for people yeah. to be aware of? And also what medical advice do you ignore? It's a great question. Um, this actually dovetails with your question on FDA to some extent. So, you know, I think you know, there's, there's a large portion of our community, right? Sort of the entrepreneurial community, the VC community, et cetera, that that's focused on optimization of health. That's great. We should all, you know, we should all strive to be healthier and, and so forth. It does get to a point where we're, we're, we get into these debates around like, do I take metformin? Do I microdose this or that? Do I take rapamycin to maybe extend my life and use this drug off-label or that one off-label? And those are really complicated questions, right? Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like there's there's a handful of pundits that will walk through, you should take this one, don't take this one, that sort of stuff. I think that the challenge is when most people think about those questions is they, they, they look at it as this is probably going to help me or it might help me. And there don't seem to be very many downsides. So why not? Like, why not take X medicine off-label or do this or do that? And I think the challenge is when you just look at the clinical data, the downsides tend to not reveal themselves until much later on. And the reason for this is that clinical studies are powered to identify a benefit, right? We statistically design studies in a way so that they're structured to identify okay, we think, you know, X portion of the study population is going to get this benefit. We're going to enroll this number of people. We're going to capture that benefit. Okay. They saw a reduction in their cognitive decline by this percent or that percent. Studies are not powered to identify rare long tail side effects, which in the aggregate may take a very long time to reveal, but are damning. So a great example of this is you go way back to the 1960s, there was a drug uh, called fentermine that uh, yeah, it was 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 uh, available in the market, and by 1996, it was one of the most popular drugs in America. Fentermine and a close cousin of it um, had 18 million prescriptions in 1996, um, and it was a drug for weight loss. Um, and you know, patients were getting a lot of benefit. It does actually seem to provide real benefit from a weight loss standpoint. And overall, the clinical data on the drug like looked pretty good. But it turns out, like w- once it was in real world use at scale, people started to notice that patients on that drug were developing pulmonary hypertension and heart disease at much higher rates than people that weren't on the drug. And so in 1997, a year after its peak sales, it was pulled from the market. And so this is an example of, I think, of a time where both, look, you know, the, the drug was sort of in approved when FDA was in its infancy. Uh, you know, late stage FDA recognized, hey, maybe we should pull this one. I think it's not providing the, the risk benefit doesn't make sense. And an example of a time where 
on the surface, it looked really good and like there weren't many money health effects. But once you build up enough data and real world evidence, you identify that, hey, actually, this isn't maybe as safe as we thought it was. So I think the question everyone has to ask themselves is, you know, as the benefit from a drug increases, I think the tolerability for risk, you know, should go up, right? So think of a COVID vaccine, like, yeah, it's a new vaccine. Should I take it? Should I not? You know, I think like the benefit of not getting COVID, not getting long COVID, not exacerbating a pandemic means like, yeah, take the vaccine. But if the benefit's small, right, like maybe you might extend your life by two months or three months or have a slightly lower biomarker, like that's a real question to think about. Like, are the benefit, do the benefits really outweigh the risks? Do we really understand the risks? So I think, I, I wouldn't say I have medical advice in any specific one, but it's more of a philosophical question or I think we should all ask ourselves when we think about these optimizations. And Zishan, do you take your vitamins daily? Do you believe in vitamins? Where's the latest in vitamins, by the way? It, it seems like there's always a lot of the innovation around like how, you know, how efficient they are or the, the types, et cetera. So what's, what's your take on that space? Uh, I'm, I'm a fan. I, I take supplements. You know, I think the way to think about supplements is that you know, the supplements one person needs differs from person to person based on their unique biology, diets, habits, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I'm a big fan of Thesis, which is one of our portfolio companies, which takes into account through their personalization algorithm, um, all these factors and, and sort of helps people match to the right supplements that can support their cognitive performance, brain health, et cetera. Um, so I think ultimately, depending on the type of what you're trying to get out of it, right. Um, you know, they can be really helpful. Um, and yeah, big fan of taking magnesium too. Well, let's let's wrap on on a lighter note. Uh, so, tell us what are some of the things besides public health and investing that you know a lot about? Yes, yeah, so I, I know a little bit about the the music industry and in, in, in the live event space. Uh, my, my, my senior year of college, I opened a music venue uh, outside nearby Emory, and uh, so booked a lot of acts, booked a lot of uh, you know nationally recognized folks like Outkast and Bob. Um, Mac Miller back then, and, and some folks on the EDM side, um, you know, Porter Robinson, etc. So I, I know a lot about putting a, a, a good boogie together. Uh, I, I know I know that process intimately well. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Maybe we'll engage you next time we uh, put together a founder retreat or something. I love that. I would love definitely that. do that. I think it would be really fun. <laughs> Well, this, this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights on everything from healthcare to vitamins to music venues. Um, really enjoy the conversation and uh, look forward to many more. Thanks so much Thank for having you. us on. We love being part of the Village community. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.